Well, we are in the book of Jonah, and we are wrapping up our time in Jonah. Imagine with me that you have a child, either an actual child yourself, or maybe it's a niece or a nephew, and you are preparing for their birthday. You ask them to write down exactly what they want for three birthday gifts, no matter the cost, and you will get it for them. The day comes and you are so excited to see them open their gifts, exactly what they asked for, and you can hardly contain your excitement to see how they will respond. Will it be sheer joy? Will it be tears of gratitude? Will it be overwhelming hysteria as they cannot wait to enjoy this gift that you gave them? You pause as they rip the gift open of the first present and they respond with, oh, that's nice. Then the second gift, they rip it open and they respond with, I don't really like this one. And the third and final gift is met with, that's really the best you could do. You are stunned. This is not at all the response you pictured when you bought the gifts and wrapped them and anticipated on this day. So what do you do? Do you take the gifts back? Do you tell them that that's the last time you will ever buy them anything? Or do you demand a different response. In today's text, we will see Jonah fall back into his bad attitude ways that we saw in chapter one. But the question is, does Jonah have a right to be angry with God after God is merciful to the city of Nineveh? The overwhelming answer, of course, is no. He has no right to be mad at God. But this begs a deeper question. What if God was merciful to the person that you hated the most or you thought was least worthy of God's mercy? Maybe it's someone who sinned against you or harmed you or even caused trauma in your life that still marks you to this day. Does this person you think of who makes your skin crawl with hatred, deserve God's mercy. We need to remember that the main idea of Jonah, it's not the bad attitude prophet, it's not the storm, it's not even the great fish, or even what happens in chapter 4, but the fact that this is a book about God and his severe and specific mercy. In Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, Jonah makes a statement that as his people should help us rest in his goodness and in his sovereign purposes. Here's the statement that he makes. Chapter 2, verse 10, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the hinge on which the book turns, and some scholars say it's not only the main point of Jonah, but the main point of the whole Bible. If you haven't noted that, note that. The whole point of the Bible is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And there are some things that we need to be made aware of as we journey through the whole Bible. And we will see it more often. To put it plainly, it's this. Two words. God saves. 
He is the one who does all the work to save us, not only from the power of sin, the power of death, the power of hell and Satan, but he also saves us from ourselves. This is why we see the gospel like a diamond with many facets that will never lose its luster. And this phrase helps anchor us to the truth that God in his infinite mercy is the one who initiates salvation and he sees it through as well. Look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. This is a good one to, to mark and to have highlighted and underlined, Philippians 1, verse 6. It'll be on the screen behind me. If I can see it, my eyes are 41 years old. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Partial completion? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, the day we see him as his people face to face, all that you have endured, listen to me, look at me for just a second, all that you have endured, either at the hands of someone else or by your own sinfulness, will make sense on that day. He will bring it to completion. And thanks be to God that we can't be good enough for God. We cannot merit our own salvation. I say this all the time. We bring him our sin and he gives us his salvation. He makes our sin his responsibility on the cross and he gives us his righteousness according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These are the lenses we need for Jonah and all of the Bible. So let's look at Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be in the first four verses this morning. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But to look at these four verses today, we need to add a fifth to the beginning to remind us why Jonah responds the way he does. Look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God, in his compassion, saw that the people of Nineveh repented and did not follow through, as the NIV says, did not follow through with the disaster that he had threatened. And you would think that when Jonah saw this and the very fact that God did not destroy this great city, which the Bible says, Jonah's response would have been worship. You can picture in your mind Jonah running back to his town and telling everyone of the great mercy of God and that a city who was so evil to God's people had repented. They had turned from their evil ways and began to worship the one true God. It would be great if the book ended this way, but unfortunately, it doesn't. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's look at verse 1. What is the it that displeased Jonah? The it that displeased Jonah in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah, is God's severe or specific mercy on the people of Nineveh. Jonah is blinded by his unrighteous anger, and he was certain that the people of Nineveh deserve God's justice and the impending disaster that was coming. The fact that God even gave them a time, 40 days to repent, would have made Jonah very angry at God. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, that this translation in verse 1, it says, it greatly displeased Jonah. Greatly displeased Jonah. That's further than just being disappointed. It greatly displeased him, showing that Jonah didn't try to hide his displeasure at God's compassion to this great city. And then later on in the Holman Christian Standard Bible in this translation, it says that Jonah became furious. The ESV simply says he was angry. But the the Holman Christian says he became furious. Have you ever felt this way? So enraged with something, some injustice that's taken place. He became furious. And it helps communicate that Jonah was throwing a fit, much like a petulant child who didn't get his way. He wanted the people of Nineveh to die for their crimes. He thought that was just, for them to die for their crimes. And instead, God chose mercy, and that infuriated Jonah. We see that in verse 1. Let's look at verse 2. Again, Jonah's reaction is good that he goes to the Lord in prayer. Jonah responds in prayer. He brings his complaint to the Lord. Did you know you can do that? You can bring your complaint to the Lord. There are plenty of Psalms in the book of Psalms where the Psalter, he brings his salty complaints to the Lord. He's being salty. Is that how you use it? Is that right? Okay. I I don't know, I'm not, I I think I'm a millennial, I don't know what I am. But he's bringing his salty complaint to the Lord. And this prayer reveals Jonah's heart. Jonah, he gives us a glimpse of what could have either been a prayer or a conversation in his own head in chapter 1. He says, this is, this is what I said when I was still in my homeland. This is why I ran away, because I knew that you were going to be compassionate. And we're not privy to this conversation. We don't know what the conversation was like. But we see why Jonah ran in the first place and why he was mad at God. Basically, what Jonah's saying here is he's saying, I knew it. I knew you would act this way, God. I knew you would be compassionate. 
And Jonah begins to recite truths about God in verse 2, about God's covenantal love for his people. And in reality, as Dr. Tim Keller says, he says he tries to set God up against God. He says, I knew you would act like this. And then he begins to recite something that Chapin just read for us. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. I want us to look at this. Turn there if you would. This is probably, and you'll hear me say this often, this is probably one of the most important two verses in the Bible. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. These verses date back to a very dark time in the life of the people of Israel. They chose to worship a golden calf, and though God had every right to annihilate them, he forgave them. Moses goes up to receive new stone tablets of the law as he had broken the first one in his, in his anger when he saw the people of Israel worshiping this golden calf. And here's what I love about these two verses is God describes his own heart. Listen to this. I want to read it again. I know Chapin read it for us, but I, I, want, I want y'all to hear this. Verse 6 of Exodus 34 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. God describes his own heart here. And I, I want to pause here for just a moment. God tells Moses his name. I want to break down these verses for just a second. He says, my name is Yahweh. That is my covenant name with my people. I've made a covenant with you and you have covenanted with me. And that is what you call me is Yahweh. God of creation and God of redemption. And then he says his name twice, the Lord, the Lord. He says it twice for emphasis. Think of a, a king being announced before he comes into the room, the Lord, the Lord. And then he goes in to describe himself. I want to do something, and I promise I'm not going to steal your wallet or anything while we do this. I want you to just close your eyes for a second. And I want you to listen to God describe his own heart. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Open your eyes. And think about the heart of God for his people. And listen, is your idea of God one who is distant and angry? Maybe he's tired and disappointed and maybe he's frustrated with you. Do you see him like he's waiting to punish you the next time you sin and he's waiting around the corner to catch you? Think 
on these verses in the Old Testament and rest. These two verses are some of the most important verses in the life of a believer because God describes himself here. He says, this is my heart for my people. This is how I am bent. He says, first and foremost, I am merciful and gracious, not frustrated and tired not angry and, and looking ready to catch you. He says, I'm merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm abounding in chesed, my covenantal love, my loyal love for my people, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Maybe you're here this morning and that's all you need to hear is that God is a forgiver of sins. Even if your family holds sins against you, even if your friends hold sins against you, even if your coworkers or your children or whoever it is, even if they hold sins against you continually, our God is one that does not hold sins against us. Psalm 130 tells us that. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? But in you there is forgiveness. Think about the rain that's falling this morning. Maybe that's the refreshment that we need. Maybe that's the mercies that we need to be met with this morning. That God, the very first thing he says about himself to his people is that I am merciful and gracious. I am a forgiver of sin. But when we see in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah only quotes the first part there. He's trying to set God up against God. And he does not use verse 7. Back then they didn't have verses, but he doesn't use the last part of this statement. And listen, God will hold those who continue to walk in unrepentant sin, he will hold them accountable. You will either, listen, you will either stand before God one day justified in Christ, or you, you will stand before him condemned. It's one of those. There's no in between. You will stand before him justified, or you will stand before him condemned. He does not wink at sin. God does not wink at sin. Here's a question. Do you want to see God's mercy? Look at the cross of Christ. What happened on that wretched Roman cross? We see God's mercy. Do you want to see how seriously God takes sin? Look at the cross of Christ. We see that he exhausted all of his wrath on his son, poured it out in your place and in mine. This is why we trust him as our savior who forgives us of our sin, who washes us with his blood, who atones for us. Jonah chapter four, verse three says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is 
better for me to die than to live. This is Jonah's prayer, the end of his prayer here in these four verses. In the King James Version, he uses this word called beseech. This is a word I wish we would use. I wish my kids would use it. Father, I beseech you, but they don't use it. Beseech means to ask urgently or fervently, to ask with passion. Jonah's saying here, I want you to kill me because instead of seeing you be compassionate, I would rather die. I don't want to see you be compassionate to my enemies. I would rather die, he says. This is how much Jonah actually hated the Ninevites. He would rather die. Then in verse 4, God speaks to Jonah. Says, and the Lord said, stop, pause, stop here. Do we see this as a mercy from God? Do we see this as a grace that the Lord didn't just annihilate him? Jonah is angry with the infinite creator. Think about this for just a minute. Before you get angry at God next time, think. Why would a creature made from the dust be angry at an infinite creator? And he says here, the the word says here, and the Lord said. It doesn't say, and the Lord acted, or the Lord destroyed Jonah. It says, and the Lord said. How patient is God that he would not just kill him on the spot, just like he threatened to do to Nineveh. Here's why. Because he is Exodus 34, 6 patient. He is long-suffering. I think about my parents growing up, and I think long-suffering best describes them. My sister, she was a good kid. Then you get to me, the baby of the family, there's different stories that are told, okay, in Borger, Texas, about Ricky Garzon. And people were surprised that my dad was a pastor, or that I'm even a pastor now. I see people at Walmart that I went to high school with, they're like, you're a pastor? Hey, by the grace of God. But listen, that God would even speak here. Are we blown away by that? That he would be patient enough to deal with Jonah. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, it's like him stooping down to Jonah and saying, hey, stop. Jonah's throwing a fit like a petulant child, and God says, hey, uh uh-uh. And then what does God say? He says, do you do well to be angry, or is your response the right one? At the heart of God's question is truly a question. And when God asks questions, it's it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but he's drawing us out. He's drawing out our hearts. And here's truly what God is asking. He says, do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? Do you have a good reason to be angry? And we'll see next week that Jonah really has no response for God's question. I want to end our time with this, thinking about these things. 
The reason why it's important that we can read these, these chapters in parallel, we're reading it in parallel with chapter two and chapter four, chapter one and chapter three. It helps contrast things for us. Chapter two, chapter four. In chapter two, we see that Jonah cries out in prayer for his own life. At this moment, in chapter two, he is not desiring to die anymore in the belly of the great fish. Jonah believed the gospel in chapter two. He's crying out for mercy in chapter two. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we fast forward to chapter four, the beginning part there. Listen, chapter two, he believes the gospel. In chapter four, he stops believing the gospel. You know why he stops believing the gospel? Because he doesn't believe that it's true for the Ninevites. You see how quickly we can forget the gospel? It had just been a few days. This is why we continually preach the gospel here at Redeemer. Much like Martin Luther, he was asked, Luther, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? And, they, and he said, because you forget it every Monday. We need to remember that the gospel is not only for people who aren't converted to Christ, but it's for the person who has been a Christian for 50 years. It is still good news. And when it stops being good news, you have to ask yourself some questions. Do I truly believe that the gospel is real and it has the power to save? The moment we think someone doesn't deserve the mercy of God is the moment we stop believing that salvation belongs to God. And this is a slippery slope. When we think that the person that we cannot stand to even think about doesn't deserve God's mercy, it stops being the gospel. The Bible tells us that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Listen, look, listen to me for just a minute. If the gospel could save someone like me, then it really has the power to save. If you knew some of the things that I thought or had in my heart or hatred for people, then the gospel does really have power to save. I am a wretch who needed God's amazing grace. And the moment that you think you did any of the work is the moment it loses its power. In the New Testament, Jesus tells stories called parables that help the hearer wrestle with the truth about God. They are not fables or folklore, but stories that drive home a point about the human heart and its relationship to God. I want to read one in Matthew chapter 20, starting verse 1. Matthew 20, verse 1, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. 
And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first, when they first came, uh, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to, to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give it to the last worker as I give to you. And I'm, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first, last. Verse 15 is key here. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? If salvation belongs to the Lord, do we truly trust him when his commandment to us is to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our job, listen church, our job is to go out and evangelize the world. That is more important than you being a mother or a father or uh, an employee anywhere. That is the most important thing that you are, that you do, is to evangelize the world. And the moment we think that someone doesn't deserve God's grace, again, is the moment it loses its power. We have to think through these things. It is up to God to give what is rightly His. Will whoever you come in contact with, listen, when you're at work, are people getting a different version of you? Are they getting a different mouth and a different sense of humor? Every person we come in contact with at some point should hear the gospel. Are we that passionate about it? When we are steeped in the gospel, then that is what comes out of us. And listen, especially when we're suffering especially when we're suffering. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come up. I want to ask us, do we see this? Do we see this as a gift? Or do we see it as something we deserve? Have we trained our mind to think over time? that there are aspects of this that I worked hard enough for or that I work hard enough to keep myself in? 
God initiates and he keeps. He will see it through to the day of completion. Here's my invitation this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian or maybe you just don't know, listen, you don't deserve God's grace, but you get it in Christ. There's nothing about God that you deserve. The only thing we deserve is to suffer under his wrath for eternity. And we bring him our sin and he gives us his justification, his righteousness. In the perfect life of Christ, in his substitutionary death on a cross, in his grave robbing resurrection and his ascension where he is seated at the right hand of the Father now. That's the good news for you this morning. Come to Christ, repent of your sin, and believe on him. If you are in Christ, if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, the question is somewhat the same. Have you fallen into a mindset where you think you deserve God's grace, where you deserve his mercy, that you're actually a good enough person that there's a part of you that God sees and he's like, that guy's a keeper. I see him and he's, he's going to kill it for my kingdom. Remember, you were dead and now you're alive. That's the good news. Let's pray.